Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Robert Burke. Robert is a former CEO with a deep appreciation of the challenges faced by senior leaders. His focus is challenging managers to think outside the known and consider alternative perspectives. For many years, he was the program director for the Futures Thinking and Strategy Development Program at Melbourne Business School. Robert has also written articles on the interrelationships between leadership, strategy, futures, complexity, and our inner realities. Welcome to FuturePod, Robert. Thank you, Peter. Great to finally get this interview recorded. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to it. First question we ask all our guests, Robert, is the story question. So what is the Robert Burke story? How did Robert Burke become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Okay. Uh, thank you, Peter. Well, strangely enough, it happened after I became CEO. <laughs> I, I realised that I had this position. Like many people in my position then, your strategy, as what you thought was your strategy, simply wasn't working. There was something missing. Although I was a CEO, I decided it was about time I actually went and learned something about being a CEO. <laughs> so that's when I did my master's and my doctorate. But it was based on really action learning, or if you like, action learning in the future or anticipatory action learning. Yep. And But the main thrust of it was to use my own organisation and myself as the case study rather than anyone else's. And this has been my theme through my teaching later on is that although case studies are interesting, they're of little value if they don't actually relate to yourself. Your best case study has to be your own self, your own organisation. Where do you fit in? I was very much influenced in the early days by... Um, People like Peter Elliard and Malcolm Davies, who ran the power brewing at the time. And I guess it was when I heard these people speak that I became fascinated by what was possible from a futures point of view. I was then very fortunate to meet Sahail Aniatullah, and we actually started the Future Thinking and Strategy Development Program some 20 odd years ago at Melbourne Business School. Wow. And I understand it's one of the longest continuously running programs mm. uh, since. Unfortunately, the um, pandemic has made it more, more difficult to keep alive, but we, we, we do our best. So what I found, though, once I started to learn more about the future, or more about futures thinking per se, is that it was really a story that in reality your organisation didn't exist. All that existed was people. So if you wanted to change the organisation, you really had to change the conversation. Yeah. And that, that became a very important aspect of, of what I decided to do. So I started employing people who had really good knowledge to what we needed in, in the business at that time, which was in the oil and coal mining industry. Shudder to think about that now. But I 
would employ chemists, metallurgists, mechanical engineers, etc. But then my task was to help them become better communicators, help them be able to actually serve our customers in a way that was more productive, more fun, if you like. So after, say, 10 years of trying this, the miracle happened and we became quite a successful organisation. At one stage, we were considered the most profitable organisation of our type in the world on a per-employee basis, a productivity basis. So that was pretty gratifying. Earlier on, the company that I had, uh, Victory Lubricants, we soon merged with a UK company called Century Oils, a public company. I maintained the um, managing directorship of the Australian version and a certain amount of shares. And that worked really well for about a good 10 years. Unfortunately, Century Oils was subjected to a uh, hostile takeover. <laughs> and uh, I was involved in that. We eventually lost. Remarkably, I was able to keep my job, primarily because we were quite successful. I remember the new chairman asking me, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, really, what we're on about is service. We don't measure our success about our bottom line. We measure our success about our customers' bottom line. Customers bottom we made line. a difference to them. And uh, anyway, I was able to survive that for a couple of years. But inevitably, the new owner, they have their own their ways of doing things. I agreed to, to leave and to pursue new things. At that stage, I started my own organisation called Futureware. But eventually, I found my way into the academia, if you like, into the Melbourne Business School. Can I take you back to when you were the CEO of your company and you said that it's about if you want to change the organisation, you've got to change the story they're telling themselves. Can you go more into what you mean by that? And also, if you were successful, what is it that people were able to do? Okay. I, I was very influenced by Ralph Stacey yeah. and his complexity work. And in fact, I, I organised for, for Ralph to visit Australia for a week and to um, give his wisdom to us, if you like, at the business school. And I was influenced by his, the fact that when he said to me that I don't want to use any PowerPoint, I don't want to use any whiteboard, all I need is a circle. All I need is for people to talk. Uh, the power of the circle. Power of talking. Some people couldn't handle that and left, and, mm. and that was okay. But I began to see that it really was our inner story, what we bring of ourselves to the work we were doing. And when he said that if you think about your organisation, whether it be Century Oils, whether it be Shell, that really doesn't exist. All that exists is you, the people, and if you want to change the organisation, you change the conversations. And that rang a bell so deep to, with me that I began to have, from then on, two meetings. One I'd call a leadership meeting where there was no agenda and uh, we just talked about what was emerging. I, I attended that meeting as a CEO. The other meetings were your management meetings, which I didn't attend. I thought it must better do people who were in charge of certain areas to get on with it. 
Mm. And then I began to see that my role was really one of constructive destruction. (laughs) (laughs) What I need to do to destroy the company has existed in order to let a better company start to emerge. And I think this is where I came face-to-face with some problems with my new owners, a German-based company, also a public company, who really couldn't understand that our success was due to the fact that we were relating at a far different level with our customers than, than was expected. But we were profitable. For instance, we had less than... 1% of the global sales, but more than 10% of its profit. It was was really working. And we formed really good relationships with our customers. I remember one coal mine, which was owned by a major oil company, where the major oil company insisted that they needed to do the business with us that my company was doing. So we agreed to do a six-month trial. This was in the flotation area in the Bowen Basin in Queensland. It's one of the major coal mines up there. So this company went ahead and did their six months trial. And we know there, the mining company itself lost quite a few million dollars as a result. Mm. So we came in and did what we did, which was really to add service to the product, to develop the product that would handle all 14 seams, 13 seams of coal or whatever it was. And to really take on the role of being um, looking after it for the customer. And the profit just went through the roof for them, for the customer. This meant that we could get off to tender and charge an appropriate amount of money, not a rip-off amount of money, but sometimes three or four times more than what was on tender. But we were far more profitable for them. You said it. You were successful, but and I'm not saying this is anything about the Germans, but they couldn't understand. They were uncomfortable with what you were doing or they didn't understand what you were doing. Now, I'm not asking for psychoanalysis, but what was going on for them that what you were doing seemed so foreign? I wrote quite a lot about this, Peter, and I called it the overriding influence of cultural imperative, the myth of the bottom line. So even though our bottom line was superb, we were doing things differently than the group were doing. And I think probably a lot of it was due to my own naivety at the time. I firmly believed that if I kept on producing the results we produce, then, of course, I was safe. The company was safe as the way it was. That turned out not to be so. They really, even though we were profitable, they really didn't understand the basic methodology, the basic sort of inner world that we were working in, the real commitment that we had, and was pushing us to get into more traditional parts of the oil industry. I saw no future in that. I couldn't see a little company like ours at that time competing with Shell or competing with Castrol in the automotive world. I saw us existing only in the high-tech area. This is why I would employ really good technicians, training them to be really good people. I don't mean that in any other way, but to be able to relate to the customer in a way that was deeper than just customer and supplier, a real partnership. Is that difficult to do? We all know what the caricatures of engineers are, but was it difficult to 
develop technically oriented people into becoming very much other centric in terms of the person they were working for. I started to sponsor a chair in tribology, tribos theory of um, rubbing, lubrication, friction, and wear at um, Queensland University of Technology. And I managed to get Mount Isa Mines to be a 50% supporter of that chair in tribology and to start to see people develop. And I guess I, I use that as my talent spotting. Get them young before they get enculturated. I think so. And it also meant that I had to learn what they knew. I found that I had to go to Wollongong University to learn basic coal preparation, then to the Julius Christian Centre at uh, Queensland University to learn advanced coal preparation. So I found that I had to learn the language as well. I want to move you to Mount Eliza now because you've had this leadership experience in your own organisation of both how you can create excellence in organisation, but you've also had the through the skin experience of how that can be received in hierarchical organisations. And then you stepped into the education space where I'd imagine you were starting to work with people who, in theory, wanted to become better at their jobs. Exactly, Peter. I was very fortunate at that time when I moved into the business school. I had been a CEO, etc., and had experience. But I was very fortunate also to have a Deputy Dean, Dr. Karen Morley, who was supportive of running a new program with Sahal. Right. It took a lot of courage of her because the business school said, what the hell are we talking about here? You know, we don't do futures thinking, well, in that sense. But we started the program, started to attract very senior people, including CEOs, and as I say, it had resonance over 20-odd years. Sahal was a particularly wonderful person to work with. I was continuously learning from him. And we, we developed a process where people could come to the program and we, we had a structure for them. Even though it was about future thinking, it was a, still a structured approach that they could replicate when they got back to their own organisation. I think the right. defining part of the program was that we insisted that each participant apply what we had taught them to their own organisation and make a presentation back. This gave them the opportunity to try the tools and methodologies in a safe environment and the hope that they would try them when they got back to work. I would start the program talking about leadership and learning, particularly the role of anxiety in learning. And here I was really relating to a lot of work of Heifetz and Linsky on adaptive leadership, that less than 10% plans were considered ever implemented. And the, the reason for this seems to be that they were done at such a low level of anxiety. And they usually happen with a vision being up front. And what we encourage them to do is to use the futures tool and do your visioning last. Because we wanted you to challenge your assumptions, where they might break down, what weren't you looking for. And, and then we would apply Sahal's six pillars of future thinking, of which the first four pillars were the rigour of future thinking and the last two pillars, the um, creative alternatives and transformation, was the rigour, relevance and rigour. Yeah. You were starting with structure and you were starting where they were. Yeah, and we are trying to have a language that they could understand 
that didn't scare them, that excited them. We're trying to say that to be anxious was normal. And I recalled the paper that Chris Argerus wrote in the early 90s called Teaching Smart People How to Learn. Yeah. Ironically, said the smarter you are, the more difficult it is to learn yep. new things. Yep. And um, this sort of had a resonance with a lot of people that uh, in order to learn new things, we had to let go of what we, we learned. So I was going through a lot of learning myself with people like Heifer's Theory U, with the scenario planning at Oxford, and I got a visiting fellowship to Oxford. I did find that what we were doing, I thought was going deeper, particularly with the work of Sahal. And 80% of the, of the thinking was the thinking up front before you even did strategy. In order to get some sort of shared meaning, that was both, to use Sahal's terms, enabling that you could do it, but also ennobling that you wanted to do it mm. in order to understand what purpose was. Yeah. And just try to get them to realise what their real purpose was. You'd ask questions that, like, if your organisation was closed down today, who would matter and why? Yeah. Which of your customers would miss you most and why? And how soon would it take for another customer to fill that void? And these were questions that were Elizabeth Montgomery used to ask her Harvard class. I found them very useful in our, our work as well. That uh, this is where the idea of the um, creative destruction came yeah, in. They are deeply existential questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. But these were people who were experienced, senior executives, often CEOs. And we set it up at the beginning to say it was purposely going to challenge your, your thinking, and it, but also to give you reasons why you might think the way you think. That your, how you protect yourself against anxiety was perfectly normal. And if we could look at ways of you navigating that anxiety in a productive way, you're bound to come up with a lot better thinking before you actually do your strategy. So the strategy part then became relatively easy. I did believe, though, Peter, that strategy is what you actually do in the present, in the now. Strategic planning, although useful, was really just a spouse. It wasn't strategy in action. No. So I was trying to get this over to our participants that what you actually do in the here and now is your strategy. Yep. And so how you talked about it, how you created a story and how that story influenced what you talked about in the here and now became your real strategy. And that was the power of thinking. I'm going to move us to the second question because there's a number of things here that you've uncovered. This notion of anxiety and its effect on both leadership and the ability to learn. Again, it's a self-evident point, but most of the literature that talked about leadership was silent on the notion that leaders would ever suffer anxiety. We had the great man syndrome yes. in all those things, yet you found or you had the, whether it was courage or just the naivety to simply talk to people doing this work about 
the anxiety they felt and how it impacted on how well they did their job. Yep. Yes, I used to say to people that to do leadership well was dangerous. You could get shot, either metaphorically or for real. Mm. And the reason that is required you to say things at times that people didn't want to hear and do things at times that people didn't want you to do. But it was how you went about that, how you went about navigating the anxiety that was causing you as a leader as well as everyone else was the secret. And so Heifetz used to talk about this productive range of anxiety yep. where there was this sort of threshold of learning, enough anxiety for you to start learning something significantly different. But there was also a limit to tolerance. There was only so much change you could take. But the trick was to be able to navigate, if you like, between those parallel lines until you'd solved the problem. And that was the ad- adaptive issue, what had to change. Often people started off, don't give up. And we call that sort of letting go too soon. You weren't actually leading anymore. So your ability to actually navigate that anxiety of your own and of the people around you became critical. But it worked if you had the guts to continue it. Mm. And this is why I think that, you know, I became disillusioned a lot with a whole lot of leadership programs that were being offered. I found a lot of them were useful. I became accredited in most of them. But I began to see that people started to rely entirely on these programs and a lot of leadership programs themselves were built around a particular model. And I didn't think that was the right way to go and tried to limit the amount of, what would you call it, influence from these models, but to increase the amount of awareness that the person had about themselves, how they confronted their own demons, how they were able to leave, but also how they were able to pick the eyes out of what the methods that were available could offer them. Hmm. But to rely on them 100% and to build a leadership program, 100% of them, to me was counter-reactive. The famous saying is all models are wrong, some models are useful. Exactly, Peter. Exactly. So I was picking the eyes out of the good ones, if you like. Something I want you to talk to listeners about, because I know we've had this conversation many times over lunch, is this notion of people's inner life and developing your inner capacities in order to both better manage anxiety or to, to some extent, move the lines further apart so you could stand more uncertainty, more ambiguity. Can you talk about, because that to me is the magic, not that people can't manage what Heifetz talks about, but the ability that you can actually get much, much stronger at this by doing certain things. Yes. Um, One of the first things I did when I joined the business school was to say, what do I need to learn? So I enrolled in a postgraduate diploma in um, counselling and psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. uh, mainly to deal with my own demons, but, but also to help me understand other people and understand how I could be a better teacher or facilitator, if you like. So I found that by deep meditation, by really examining yourself and by having a philosophy of life that was based around doing no harm, to me was what I wanted to do. It wasn't about the bottom line so much, although 
that was important and we were good at that. But it was about how we could do no harm, how we could enhance the, the people that we dealt with to, to, to have a better outcomes, but to do better things. So I started to encourage our own people, and I'm going back to the now when I was a CEO, to learn. I allowed anyone in the organisation could go and learn anything at our cost that they wanted to learn, whether it be a further university degree or knitting. I didn't care. All I wanted them was to have the opportunity to learn. And that became a strong motivator for myself. But in doing that, you started to discover things about yourself, your inner world, maybe you weren't aware of before. Mm. And some of this can be dysfunctional, but in fact drove you. You wrote a paper on leadership and spirituality. I did, yes, yes. You put those two words together and I could imagine you chose those words deliberately. I did. At that stage, spirituality wasn't talked about much, certainly in the business world. But it meant a lot to me and I think Sahal was very influential to me in that sense, as were you and as were Joe Voris and as were Richard Slaughter. You know, in Melbourne there was a particularly strong futures world that I experienced to be cooperative rather than competitive, which was a wonderful atmosphere to work in. Uh, and knowing people of your ability who could fill in uh, for us, if necessary, was really important. So I, I, I cherish that. It was classic altruism and self-interest, Robert, because you had a successful futures program at, Me- at Melbourne Business School and we were trying to keep a futures program going at a small university. I used to use Melbourne Business School as a reason to say, they support futures, why don't you support exactly. futures? And we used to use our program to support the Swinburne program. You really yes. want to learn more, why don't you enrol in the futures program? Yes, collaboration is an amazing way to build resilience in the face of uncertainty. Yes, yes. I must say at times, though, Peter, I did resist joining certain groups, mainly because I felt that future thinking should be wide open. Yeah. I didn't want it closed in. I didn't want me to be closed in by certain rules and perspectives. I I felt that the, the future thinking being so open was its strength. I want to move you to the third question, which is I'll get Robert Burke, Futures Program Director and CEO, to put all those titles down and just talk to Robert Burke, human being, about the emerging futures that you see, that you sense, that you're aware of. What is getting your attention and why, you know, what are the things that excite you possibly? What are the things that, that possibly cause you concern? But yeah. The emerging future for Robert Burke. I'm very concerned about what sort of world we're going to leave our grandchildren's grandchildren in. I am a grandfather now and and concerned about that. I'm also frustrated at the poor leadership that we're experiencing. When you think about the pandemic, people like uh, Lord Mays from uh, Trinity College, cosmologist, wrote a book called Our Final Century, Mm. where he only gave us a 50% chance of getting through it. Through it. And he said the major problem was going to be a pandemic. There was James Martin's book called The Blueprint for the Future where he had 17 major challenges, 16 of which he said there were 
was answers to, like global warming, but one that there was no answer to at the moment, and that was the pandemic. It always struck me why people ignored these scientists or these people who really cared about the future, who were telling us things that we should follow. So I became very frustrated, if you like, with leadership per se. Can I, can I stop you there and ask you to tell me a story of how we got here? Because if we go back to Stacy, arduous, Heifetz, great people, bright people, producing powerful documents about what leadership had to be effective 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Exactly. We had some of the most amazing people and ideas. Exactly. And yet, if I was to look at it as a story arc, we are further, we seem to be to Peter Hayward, further away from the leadership that those people were articulating we needed. And leadership, on the face of it, seems to be in retreat. We're looking at a leadership that even, as I say, if you go back to Stacey's time, it'd be unrecognisable that these people are in leadership positions. Is it, it can't be that the leaders themselves are inferior. Is it something to do with the externalities and really the volatility that we're getting the leadership we have now? Peter, I think it's lack of courage. You know, I think um, there are solutions. People who can do something about it tend not to, particularly if you look at the global warming, as you say, is. We've known about that for some time. People have told us what we should do. The fact that we haven't seems to me amazing. But it's a concern when you see those people who have leadership roles downplaying the significance of climate change, downplaying the significance of the threats to our very existence by not only ignoring things like global change but ignoring what's going on in the world of geopolitics. I think a lot of it is due to our expectation that leaders have the answers and they believe themselves to have the answers. We'd be far more courageous than to say, I, I really don't know, but let's try to find out together. Uh, and I don't want to get personal about uh, a lot of leaders, but I am horrified how poorly... We as human beings are being played with, if you like, by people in powerful positions. I don't know if that sounds overdramatic, but... No, I think it's... I asked for a story and to some extent you've given the story of we... It's always been the same, that you get the leaders you deserve. On the other hand, as Richard Slaughter always says, there also are signs of hope. Yes. It's, you've got to make the effort to look for them. Yes. Do you see the signs of hope? Yes, I do. I find a lot of the young people who are reacting to what they're seeing is going to infect their world is a sign of hope. I also think that science itself is a sign of hope. The idea that you could have vertical farming, for instance, you know, these 80-storey farms that could produce four crops a year in the middle of the city seems to me to be a wonderful idea. The idea that a country the size of Denmark could feed the entire world using vertical farming, according to Professor Desperio from Columbia University. So I think those ways of science is good. At Sydney University, one of the um, research centres there, I was introduced to a guy who had developed 
the Seneca beetle of uh, Nambia Desert, you know, which is both hydrophilic and hydrophobic, how it can mm. produce its own water. And he came up with this process, if you like, simplified it, like putting two pieces of polyurethane together and you create water. And I found this was brilliant, that you can create your own water uh, in places that water hadn't been seen before, mm. that we could actually start helping people in real need by simple science being put into practice, creating your own water, vertical farming, doing things differently, freeing up the animals, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and, and all those things are possible. And all they require is to give it a go, do some prototyping. In Singapore they have, Saudi Arabia they have, and it seems to be seems to be working well. I remember when I was at the business school in Melbourne, I did a calculation. I think we needed 80 of these towers to feed the entire population of Melbourne. And I saw them as cooperatives where you'd have this um, tower, this vertical farm, and underneath it you'd have the marketplace where people would all own it, would come and do their trading get fresh food, slow food, seasonal, etc., and good nourishment, etc., in the middle of the city and where we wouldn't have to have big farms where we had to have a lot of traffic. Also very interested in the piezoelectric idea, the fact that stress could create energy, the idea that it, as you drove along the road that, that, yeah, that, that you could create enough energy to have free energy in your motor vehicle or your truck or whatever, all seems possible to me, all seems hopeful to me, that if we start to respect those sciences rather than to abuse them, which I think we do a lot of, we might get a lot of answers. At the same time, I was horrified to see the disrespect given to humanities at the universities in favour of the STEM subjects. To me, you know, Education is about inquiry, not performance. It's mm. about teaching people to think, and humanities are certainly very important in that. So am I hopeful for the future? Yes, if we allow some of these ideas into fruition. Yes, if we can add different programs to university courses like futures programs like the one you ran at Swinburne. Yes, if we honour life itself and we start to respect that the social classes don't exist, that we're all there, and start helping people in a genuine way. I guess I'm influenced also by my daughter, who works for Oxfam in the UK, the CIO there, and she's quite inspirational about the work that lots and lots of people are doing that we don't actually recognise all the time. Hmm. So there is hope. And, and there should be concern. And we should, concern. It can, again, come back to your point there are things to be anxious about yes we should but that anxiousness should galvanize us to act it sounds ludicrous after we've seen the effects of wars that we that i feel that we're on the brink of yet another one or that the anxiety of just day-to-day -day news articles being negative I, I it's like a treat not to have to listen to the news at times i, yeah. I do because i 
need to be up to date, etc. But sometimes I feel that we rejoice in all these problems rather, yeah. rather than think about how do we solve these problems? How do we get people to talk? How do we create a, a different narrative, a kind narrative, a narrative that's going to enhance humanity, not destroy it? And with the last question, I want, I'm going to ask you a question and mm-hmm. and we'll finish with this one, which is someone listening to FuturePod is starting out, maybe not a CEO, maybe just a small organisation, maybe just starting out trying to make a difference in their own way. But if you were to, with what you've learned and what you believe, what, you know, without calling it advice, and I'm not thinking you'll come up with, you know, the 10 things that effective leaders do, but. Yeah, what is your sort of advice as to how a person goes about both building their own capacity but also building the capacity of the people around them in order to do good work? My, well, my own feeling is to develop a sense of purpose. You know, as I said, what, what, what enables us and what enables us. That to create something that is useful, something that you feel proud of, something that you're prepared to commit to. Do I advise young people going into into certain business? Only if they're really committed to it. Only if they're prepared to understand that there will be resistance. But that resistance can be actually learning. I I was really struck by um, Sahal's integral scenario method where you integrated the disowned with the preferred. And I found that, that extraordinarily powerful. That even if you were you had a scenario that you didn't want, that you completely avoided, but you started to think about if it did happen, how could I turn it into something useful? Yeah. So I would encourage anyone starting out in business now. To me the most important area of study would be futures thinking. It enables them to have choices. It enables them to think differently, but to think more holistically. It enables them to be kinder, if you like. And so, to me, future thinking and leadership one of the same thing. And that the only reason you need a leader is to create some sort of preferred future. If that wasn't the case, leadership wouldn't be required. Management will do. But it is the case that we need to move forward. And it is the case that we need to develop people to be resilient enough to work out what they want to do. But also to have the courage of your convictions. That if you really believe in what you're doing and you get knocked back, be able to get up and start again. On the other hand, if you get knocked down, Maybe there's a reason for that. (laughs) I would think too, Robert, the other one too, which again, I don't think is different to what you're saying, but in your own story, you, you didn't try to do things by yourself. No. You found people to work with. Absolutely. And you found strength through collaboration. Yep. And I always employ people who I thought were much better suited to to the task than me. So that they had to have the technical skills, but 
the rational skills, but they also need to develop the non-rational, the inner self. It was a great honour, actually, when I think about it. It's a wonderful role they have to be a CEO. It has its trials, its tribulations, but it also enables you, if you wish to take the, the challenge on, to make a real difference. Hmm. Like you're doing with these future pods. I think it's more conversations we have about what's possible and not possible, but really what's possible because we won't know what's possible unless we explore them. That's right. And I think future thinking, again, is a way of exploring what's possible. So rather than put it in the background, it should be in the foreground. It should start at primary school. <laughs> Look, Robert, it's been great that we've been able to finally have this conversation. And thanks for finding some time to have a chat to me and the FuturePod community. Thank you very much, Peter. Really enjoyed it. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.